from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a guest joining us from across the Atlantic from the country of Serbia. He's a prolific writer of over 25 novels, and his numerous short stories have been adapted by popular YouTube narrators such as Danny Dreadful and The Dark Somnium. He's joining us today to talk about his new novel, Sinister Melody. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Boris Basic. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I uh, I really enjoyed They Came From the Mall, and I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me so we can get into the gritty details, as well as discuss your new novel that was just released on the 12th of this month. Right, well, first I want to thank you for reading my book. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Nice, nice. I was kind of worried it was going to be slow burn and people are going to, you know, give up before the halfway point. Well, that's one thing I will say is it was slow burn enough to keep your attention. Right. Like you, right. you drug it out till it was kind of agonizing, but then there was the payoff, <laughs> you know, and it yeah. was just like a slow, steady. The uh, encounters with the mannequins just got progressively creepier and creepier until the full on onslaught. Right. So, yeah, very uh, superbly written book. Thank you. Thank you. That's yeah. actually what I was aiming for. So glad well, to hear the mission, <laughs> mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, you know, when they do make these kind of like elongated books, I do try to give a little bit of a crumbs to keep the people engaged, you know, because you just if it's just absolutely nothing happens, they're going to give up. So I need to just keep them interested with just little bits and pieces here and there. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The, the sign of a great author pacing. <laughs> you know? Right. Kind of hard to do sometimes, though. Yeah. So, uh, well, I read that you started writing at a young age because it allowed you to, quote, enter a world of your own. I was talking to author Jack Wells on a previous show about how being an introvert naturally lends itself to being a writer. Would you say that you're an introvert? Oh, yeah, I'm a heavy introvert. <laughs> I think the heaviest you're ever going to meet. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is my previous jobs were uh, they required me to be an extrovert. You know, Ugh, that's so, the worst. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing about that is like when you need to work as an extrovert, it's so much easier, you know, because you kind of have this mindset, um, you know, I have to be an extrovert because, you know, I'm getting paid for it. And it's just somehow easier. But five minutes of socializing and I'm out. I need to recharge my batteries, you know? Yeah, it's easier for me to be an extrovert. Like I can do it at work because I have a defined role. 
It's like, and like right now, being an extrovert, my defined role is the host of this podcast. Your defined role is the guest. My job is to ask you questions and so on. But you get me into a social situation where I have to kind of freewheel it. And it's just like, I don't know what the hell to do. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, you know, I, I can see that some people, they just, you know, they're able to spend so much time socializing over the parties and so on. Like I said, I get depleted so fast. Oh, God. And, yeah. My best friend says he copes with that by drinking. You know, I don't drink, so I can't really do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't drink either. And uh, even when I did, I was still exhausted after a certain level, <laughs> you know, because I, I understand alcohol is the social lubricant. But if being around people exhausts you to begin with, then you're kind of sedating yourself further and reducing <laughs> your endurance for it, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> On the long term, it's just best to kind of quit that situation go back and you know for me for example just a couple of minutes of socializing then i need a couple of weeks of break you know just not speaking <laughs> to anybody you know uh -huh. <laughs> i got you all right well so because you're an introvert how much time in the day would you say that you spend inside your head uh examining characters and thinking about scenes and story progression because that seems to be the introvert's advantage as far as being a writer as they have this space that they can always occupy where they can kind of run ideas by themselves <laughs> right this is it's like a never-ending process you know <laughs> it there's not it's not a clear nine to five or something like that you know you constantly think about this stuff i usually go on walks uh at night in the nearby park because that's you know it's kind of creepy when it's night and you're surrounded by the woods and so on and uh, this is where I get most of my ideas. You know, this is where the most ideas start flowing and so on. But, you know, for the characters and so on, I'm just going to think about them throughout anything I do during the day. Like, you know, oh, I forgot to put ketchup on my food. And I'm thinking like, oh, this could be something I could put in a book. Because these little things, they're, they're, they're the things that make characters relatable, you know. And I try to kind of accumulate a bunch of these small things until you have something that, you know, people can relate to. So I think about it all the time, you know. I used to I used to be really bad at character writing. Um, I used to just kind of make them either good or either bad, you know, nothing in between. But you know, you got to realize that characters—they're just you know human beings like you and me with flaws, and you just got to add, you know, just the basic stuff. So I always add the basic stuff, you know, whenever whatever I'm doing throughout the day, I just try to add. Would this character? How would my character react to this situation? You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely get what you're saying uh, after reading your book about making characters relatable because the characters in They Came From the Mall are teenagers. What are, They're like, what, 16, 17 years old? Something like that. 18 yeah. mostly, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm far from that these days, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, still, yeah, but still I can, you know, I can relate to, uh, their thought processes. Like I remember what it's like being that age and, and having that level of maturity, but at the same time, still trying to adapt to the adult world that I was on the, you know, on the verge of, of jumping into. So yeah, right, uh, right. you definitely make the characters relatable and, uh, <laughs> Now, now I know why, because you're 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 just you're talking to them all day long. <laughs> exactly. And it's like it's also um, these teenagers were kind of easy to write um, because, you know, it's like these were juvenile. These are like infantile characters and they were kind of easy because I'm kind of green. I want to say green, you know, <laughs> and I do make some stupid decisions from time to time. So it's kind <laughs> of easy. I still remember what it was like uh, being a teen and, you know, letting hormones run rampant and so on, you know, and it's just. 
it's just, you know, I still remember it clearly, and that's maybe why it was so easy for me to write these characters particularly. Mm-hmm. Well, you say you're green. Now I'm curious to know how long you've been writing, because I was looking through your bibliography, and I think I counted like 25 novels. Yeah, I just write fast. Jesus <laughs> yeah. Christ, man. <laughs> yeah, what happened was, <laughs> what happened was um, you know, I uh, learned uh, early on about self-publishing and so on, and I learned that, you know, you need to have a lot of books if you want to work full-time as an author. But I also just love writing. You know, I see all these authors or uh, aspiring authors who they spend like two or three years on a book constantly just kind of um, – moping around the uh, about the details and this is wrong this is wrong changing this editing this you know and it's just with that process you're never going to publish your book you know you're never going to be happy that's the first thing you know you're, you're never going to be happy with how it looks but once you hit that publish button it's out of your control and all you need to think about is the marketing you know mm-hmm. yeah so I, I really do admire prolific authors how much time do you spend uh writing in any given week it's um, hard to pinpoint the exact time. I write 5,000 words a day, uh, five to six days a week. I is, started, that, is that something you shoot for, that particular number? Like That's something I always uh, do. I always manage to get 5K. Sometimes it's more. But anything above 5K, it, I can just feel my creativity getting sapped. So I just don't spend too much time writing when I'm tired because it really impacts the quality of uh, my writing. So um, I do write like 5K words. You know, I started like very, very, very uh, small with like 1K and I didn't really have a goal. I was like, I'm just going to write whenever I write, which is still okay. You know, like all the authors that I see, like some of them are so busy with kids and with, you know, uh, day jobs and so on. And they don't have time to write. But, you know, no matter how busy you are, if you, you can find at least enough time to do 100 words a day. And if you just write 100 words a day, in like one or two years, you're going to have a you know novel done. So that's what I always go for. Even if I don't manage to hit that 5K mark, I still try to uh, write at least a little bit. But mostly I do 5K. I just, you know, trudge through it no matter how difficult sometimes into the late hours. But I try to get those 5K done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you find that uh, when you write, it's better like first thing in the morning when you're fresh? Uh, mostly I do it that way, you know. I sometimes um, spread it out across the day, you know, sometimes it's just depending on my mood, environment and so on. I do try to uh, write as soon as I wake up simply because I just feel more productive, you know, and it's like a um, it's like a train, you know, you need some time to get that momentum. And if you wait until late evening and, you know, to catch that momentum, you're going to feel tired. It's going to impact it, you know, your writing. But um. You got to keep it, keep at it a little bit. You know, you catch that momentum. And once that starts, the words just start rolling in easily, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, whenever I schedule podcasts, I don't know if you noticed uh, when I gave you times uh, to pick from that, you know, I'll leave, I'll try to leave it wide open to accommodate the the guests. But if yeah. they leave it up to me, I'll usually pick it like right at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, whatever, because by six, seven o'clock in the evening, after I've been running around all day, gone to the gym, you know, walk the dog, all that, I am brain dead. Exactly. <laughs> like, I'm just like, hey, uh, do you like writing stuff? Yeah. <laughs> so. It's exactly what it was like for me back when I worked as an online teacher, because I had horrible work-life balance, you know. And it's like I could work sometimes at six or eight or ten p.m., you know. And um, you can just, I could 
sense it on my accent because English is my second language and I could, you know, feel it on my accent, how it's just getting worse. I sound more Russian, you know, when I get tired and just my, my concentration is horrible. Yeah. So, yeah. so what, what kind of classes are you talking about? I was teaching English and uh, business oh. communication for a couple okay. of years. All right. Well, since you, you know, shoot for 5,000 words a day and you try to do it first thing in the morning. What is your, your writing atmosphere? Do you have a particular spot? Are you listening to yeah. music? So on and so forth. Right. So I have a uh, dark basement mm -hmm. and there are effigies constructed of uh, human bones hanging off the ceiling. <sighs> There's a pentagram on the floor. Have you posted pics of this? Well, no, Facebook would ban it, so I can't. Really? Um, <laughs> I uh, have, uh, sometimes if I'm feeling particularly uninspired, I'm going to, you know, have an animal or something on the pentagram sacrificed, you know, so I can get more inspiration. There is mm -hmm. a black candle, of course. you got to have candles in a dark basement. But in all seriousness, <laughs> no, I just have a simple room. <laughs> you know, for a minute there... For a minute there, I thought you were talking about like you had like some sort of effigy set up. And then I was like, wait a minute, is he talking about actually worshiping the devil? <laughs> um, Listen yeah, but listeners at home, I'm a little dense. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I have uh, just a regular room. It's a very small room, you know. Sometimes I'm going to play some slow horror music for reading and writing. That's going to help me get in the mood depending on what I'm writing. If it's something paranormal, I specifically, I just, you know, go to YouTube and I just type in paranormal slow music for writing or whatever, you know. Um, if it's something different, some creature features or whatnot, I'm going to, you know, go for something like that, something suspenseful. Um, but a lot of the times music is going to distract me. So I'm just going to have to turn it off. So really just my mood changes by the minute, you know. So you're saying you can't get the talent to write successfully by worshiping the devil? You probably can, but okay. it probably comes with a high cost. All right. So. <laughs> like your, your soul, I guess. <laughs> probably something like that. Maybe more. I mean, if you're willing to sacrifice your wife or something, that's probably a no. good trade-off. No, maybe. No. <laughs> uh, I, I know some people I can <laughs> that I wouldn't mind sacrificing. <laughs> All right. But yeah, you can probably get some talent. You know, I was I actually wrote some books uh, similar to that, you know, and it's always the same kind of trope. You uh, want something. This is what my new book is about, by the way. If we're going to talk about it, I'll tell you more oh, yeah. later. If you want something and you want it really bad, you can become really greedy. You pray to the wrong forces and bad shit just starts to happen. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, so I read that you not only self-published, but have been traditionally published as well. Um, right. By traditionally, do you mean you've queried to a mainstream publisher or... Yeah, here's what happened. Back when I, uh, before I published my first book, I um, queried a bunch of agents, a bunch of literary agents looking for someone who's going to, you know, uh, pitch my book to publishers. This was for my first book, Radio Tower. And I think I've, you know, I think I must have queried about 100 of them, 50 or something responded back, you know, uh, declining my offer. Uh, the rest didn't even respond, you know. How so many are ahead. there? Is it a is it a flooded market with literary? There is a huge. It's a huge market. You know, for horror, not so much, but there is a huge market for literary agents, because nowadays the problem is anyone can be a writer, an editor, a publisher. You know, anyone can open. I've even known authors who have opened their own small publishing houses just so they can kind of say, "Oh, look at that! I'm traditionally published," oh, <laughs> even though it's their own gotcha. published, you know, publishing house. <laughs> um, so. Um, I've queried a lot of agents. None of them were interested. 
then I self-published the book. I was like, screw it. I found out about self-publishing and how it works. You know, I was like, screw it. I'm just going to publish and see what happens. And only when I started earning some cash, some serious cash and hitting the bestseller ranks, this was when publishers started approaching me, you know, and I just started getting bestseller like on Amazon or something. Yeah. Bestseller rank on Amazon, which doesn't really mean too much, but it's, you know, it's okay for self. Well, I mean, I mean, Amazon sells a lot of stuff. I imagine it means something. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but it's like you have that orange tag that says bestseller and depending on the category where you put your, your book you can become a bestseller easily, you know. I remember that somebody tested that. They literally just put, um, they made a book about meditation and the entire book was 10 pages. The first page said, breathe in. The second page said, breathe out. And that was the entire book. And wow. they put that in certain categories that doesn't even, that don't even fit there, like some comic books and so on. You know, and this, this, these are like small categories. People buy two of the copies and you're already a bestseller, you know. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, uh, speaking of bestsellers, I was listening to um, Rogan's podcast and he had this author on. He was talking about his book being on the bestseller list, you know, like the New York Times or whatever. And he said that that doesn't necessarily mean that they've sold the most books. They actually have to apply a different metric because there are some people that will buy 20,000 of their own book. And there's exactly. actually there's actually organizations you can pay to do that, like right. to to write the reviews, to buy the books, all kinds yeah. of stuff. Yeah, authors massively do this. Self-published authors, uh, they become USA best-selling authors because um, there's like twenty of them, fifty of them. I don't know. They all make an anthology you know, for a bunch of stories. And then they all buy a bunch of that book, you know, and, you know, by the time the pre-order dates start rolling in, you know, the release date starts rolling in, it's like 6,000 copies sold and you're automatically a USA bestseller. So, yeah. Damn. (laughs) Well, I mean, you can buy status in other areas. Why not in literature? (laughs) Exactly. But New York Times is also, I mean, I don't know much about New York Times. I do know they focus a lot on paperbacks sold. And I do know they have a lot of like bullshit criteria that they follow, you know, like, oh, self-published authors are, I think, immediately disqualified from even trying to, you know, get New York Times bestsellers. Um, There are certain like retailers which are only counted for. There are just some certain rules which only work in the favors of the publishing houses. Yeah. 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 There's and then there's always follow the money. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, so. You did get some traditionally published, like... Oh, right. We didn't finish that story. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, We got a little sidetracked over there. Yeah. It was my fault. I like to go off into the weeds. No worries. (laughs) Um, So what happened was I uh, met this one uh, fan reader. She contacted me. She was like, I I read one of your books. It was actually Radio Tower. And, you know, I liked it so much that I bought all of your books. And she was like this very mysterious, you know, um, person on Facebook, no profile picture, nothing. And uh, one day she uh, contacted me. She told me like, hey, you know what? Actually, I have my own publishing house in the Netherlands and I would really love you to publish one book with me. You know, well, she wanted more, but um, I was like, for now, let's just do one. So I published first a couple of uh, short stories in her anthologies. And then there were a couple of books they wrote um, that I published for, through uh, this publishing house called Butter Dragons Publishing. Butter Dragons? And Butter Dragons. That's Butter right. Butter Dragons. Okay. Yeah. And I uh, got some more audiences from, you know, because here's the thing. Traditional publishing, it kind of has a be- better reach. 
you know? So they're able to reach for the audiences that I can't really find because most of my books are in Am- on Amazon, but they publish wide. They go through Barnes and Noble and Apple and Kobo and whatever else, and they can kind of rake in all these new readers for me, which was really useful. Okay. Well, uh, tell me about the no sleep Reddit forum. Um, what inspired you to start posting creepy pastas on that forum? And, uh, how long have you been doing it? Well, this was actually something that kickstarted my career as an author. Um, it was, it, it went way back, you know, back when I was still a teen, I used to watch, uh, listen to, and uh, read a lot of these creepy pastas from these famous uh, YouTube narrators and so on just for hours all day long because that's what my job was like. I could just listen to stuff and, you know, monitor the uh, security cameras. And um, what happened was when you're kind of exposed to that kind of stuff for too much, you start, it kind of starts to grow on you. You start to kind of want to be a part of that, if that makes sense. And I've always had this sort of um, inkling for writing and I always wanted to write. So I just felt like I had to write something. And these were like bouts that came from time to time that I just had to write something. So on a whim, I just wrote a couple of short stories for uh, No Sleep. Back then, it was no longer Creepypasta. No Sleep just became more popular. So um, I wrote a couple of short stories, but they weren't really getting any traction. And I was like, you know, how are these dudes who are posting like some stories daily and they're getting like 8,000, 10,000 upvotes or whatever? And mine got like, you know, 10 likes or whatever, you know? And I was like, I'm just going to write this one story. I'm going to post it. If people don't like it, that's it. I'm not fit to be a writer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I posted that story. And Some sure rough enough, guidelines. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm just not going to write anymore. I just give up. You know, <laughs> It was kind of, a, now that I look back, it was kind of shitty to look at you know, upvotes as a uh, qualitative measure. Because you know, it just doesn't matter in the end. Um, so I posted the story, and sure enough, it exploded. It got like thousands of you know views and upvotes and comments, just people saying, "Please continue, please give us part two, and so on. And from there, every subsequent story just got way more and more attention, you know. And um, back then, I had a friend <clears throat> who told me, um, "You should be a writer," because she saw one of my uh, no sleep stories, and she said, "You should be a writer." I was like, oh, come on, what are you talking about? I can't be a writer. <laughs> you know, I can write for fun, but there's no way I can actually write something. And then more and more people started coming to me, you know, from no sleep and saying, you know, you should, do you have any books? I want to buy your books. And I tell them, well, sorry, no, I just post stories, you know. And um, I can't remember when exactly it happened, but, you know, just more and more people kept coming and telling me, you know, uh, you should just, you know, uh, publish a book. And that's what I did. So that's what I did. the first book I published was uh, an anthology of all those short stories that I uh, mm. you know wrote for No Sleep. Okay. And is the word count? Is there a guideline for a creepypasta, like a short story? Is there a particular word count? For word count specifically, some people like them, you know, short and sweet. Others really want to get invested. So they want something uh, lengthier. I think the biggest thing for no sleep, particularly, the biggest thing is uh, the time when you post your story and the title. Yeah. Yeah. If the title is something like, exactly, exactly. And most of the titles, I'm not sure if you read frequently on no sleep stories, but most of the titles there are going to be like, I got a job at a morgue. Uh, You're not going to believe the crazy shit that happened, you know? And this is kind of like clickbait stuff. Yeah. It's more like the, uh, the title in an email. Right, yeah, right. Okay. And that's what they want to do to grab the people. 
And once they're there, you want to grab them with that first or second sentence. Those one-liners are really, really important because if they lose their attention, if you lose their attention within th that first minute, it's it's it. That's it. They're out. You know. So that's also very important. But I think the title is one of the most important things because it makes them click on your story. Okay. Yeah. And that's still going strong. I'm I, I'm asking out of ignorance because I'm honestly not on Reddit in any shape, form, or fashion. But the the no sleep is that still going strong? Yeah, there are so many members over there. I mean, you're asking about is it going well for me or just general? Well, in general, yeah. I mean, is it? Yeah, in general, it's uh, doing really well. I can see that you know people are still posting. Some some people who uh, used to post back when I still posted there, they're still going strong. They're still posting some you know uh, popular stories. I can still see YouTubers narrating them. It's still the most popular uh, place where you want to read short, short horror stories, you know. So these were specifically made like bite-sized horror for people who didn't really want to get invested into a full-length book, but they just want to read something maybe before bedtime and so on. And is this the one where um, creepypasta narrators can narrate them without asking for permission, or is that like a separate uh, Reddit forum? I'm not sure about that one. I do know that for No Sleep, they have to ask for permission. You know, this is a rule. And if they don't ask it, if they uh, narrate the story on YouTube, and I've had this happen so many times to me, if they really? narrate without, yeah, when they narrate <laughs> without permission, I had all these like people from Vietnam and Thailand and, you know, not even them, just you know, also Americans, you know, just narrating without permission and not even giving credit in the description of the video. Were, were you know? they taking credit? Yeah, of course. They were monetizing really? your channels. Yeah. Um, oh, but no, no. I mean, were they taking credit as the author? Of oh, as the, the author? No. No, they oh, were just, okay. oh, this is from No Sleep. That's all they said. You know? No, oh, okay. <laughs> so this is from No Sleep, and they were monetizing their channel, even though I gave no permission. This still happens, you know? Um, so as far as I know, for No Sleep, people have to ask for permission. And if they don't, you can file uh, what's called a DMCA complaint for YouTube, and they could just take down their videos. So, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, in a way, it's high praise. People, <laughs> you've got some sought after material, but people aren't always going about it the right way. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I still get so many messages there. I'm not active on Reddit anymore, but I get so many messages of people asking to narrate my stories. I just put in my profile, narrate whatever you want. I don't care. Just give me credit in your video, you know? Okay. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, so, um, as we were just talking about posting stories on the Reddit forum, you've had quite a few popular YouTubers narrate your stuff. Two of them would be Danny Dreadful and Dark Somnium. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, what's it like hearing someone with a dark, compelling voice narrate a story that you wrote against the backdrop of creepy ambient music? I got to say that there's something so compelling about listening to horror and I think it's way more compelling listening to, than actually reading horror because of all that ambience, because of the ambience, ambiance. I don't know how you say that word. Um, <laughs> potato, potato. Right. <laughs> um, because of that, because, um, you know, some narrators, you know, for example, Danny Dreadful is so good. You know, she is such a good narrator. You know, the pauses that she takes, the dramatic pauses, the suspenseful buildup, you know, she is just so talented for that stuff. And the Dark Somnium, I've collaborated with him too. Those two were the best narrators that have ever done my stories. It's like I'm listening and I know what's going to happen, but I'm just still, you know, it's keeping me on my toes. I'm still like, wow, this is such a good narration and a good story. I do got to give myself a little bit of credit, but mm -hmm. yeah. it's really nicely narrated, you know, yeah. and it really gives you life, gives your story life. And it's just so, 
interesting. It's like I can't really compare it. It's like listening to an instrument and playing an instrument, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like listening to somebody play the song you wrote, kind of. Right, right. Or just, you know, knowing your favorite song and then playing it on the instrument is just such a different feeling than actually listening to it. It's on a whole new level, you know. So listening to my uh, to narrations of my stories, I've always enjoyed that, you know. I've always I always listen to whoever does it. I listen to it on YouTube. Unless it's, you know, um some guy who like I there used to be these kind of people who uh they just kind of like they don't even do editing, mastering or anything. They just kind of sit in front and they read off the paper as it is you know they uh stumble with the words they mumble they you know stutter but they keep going you know <laughs> yeah they just they hit record and that's all she that's wrote. It. what happens happens <laughs> right well so i was going to ask you uh who some of your favorite narrators were so i guess dark somnium and danny dreadful would be two of them yeah yeah Any... danny dreadful was i think she's in the top of the female narrators I was always hoping that King Spook would narrate my stories, but he never did. He never approached me, so and I never really bothered him. So King yeah. Spook, if you're listening, <laughs> get on, <laughs> narrate get my on stories, it. King Spook. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever listened to him. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a, he's, he's Canadian, a, okay. and uh, he kind of posts short stories, like four to five minutes long. He hasn't been frequent, you know. He's had his own problems, you know, so he hasn't been uh, posting frequently. Okay. Yeah, uh Dark Somnium. I would I, I need to find maybe you can uh send me a link or unless it's easy enough to search on YouTube cuz uh, I would love to hear him do some of your stuff cuz he's uh Yeah. I like his his video setup and the way he's got that waveform that goes along with the reading. Right. Right. He really goes above and beyond. When I listened to the Northern Northern Lights, this was like uh I want to call it uh Feels Pasta, which is like a horror story with some sad elements. And he narrated that, that with his girlfriend. And the sound effects that he adds over there, you know, the pattering of the footsteps, the dro droplets, you know, uh, in the cavern and so on. Just It just immerses you so much, you know. None of the other um, YouTube narrators who I know, they don't do that, you know. Like uh, Mr. Creeps, he just reads and that's it. But the Dark Somnium, he just does such a good job of, like, creating this atmosphere, you know, around you. You can just visualize it even if you're not there. Yeah, I mean, even the name, the Dark Somnium. You know? Right. <laughs> like, I think, what is Somnium's Latin for dream, I guess? I think so. The Dark Dream. <laughs> like, oh, Very memorable. Shit. And that's good, because all the others are pastas, creeps, pasta, creeps, big pasta, Mr. Pasta. This is memorable, you know? Yeah. And Danny Dreadful as well. I was uh, When she was on the podcast, I was asking her how she figured out that she had a voice for it because, you know, talking to her, she's just got a very pleasant, you know, yeah. very easy on the ears kind of voice. <laughs> but then she starts getting really creepy. Exactly. You know, kind, kind of like, uh, you know, not not to compare her voice to a child's voice, but kind of like uh, a child's voice is pleasant. You know, there's right. uh, a child's laughter is pleasant, but in the right context, it's just creepy right. as hell. If you hear it at 3 a.m., it's yeah. kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah, I but, saw your I saw your video where you what was it? You heard something and then you realized you live alone. Oh, you mean on TikTok? Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hearing a sound, you're like sleeping and like you you remember. Oh, you're living alone. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, Danny is really good. You know, she did an audio book for me. 
Um, it's going to be live soon. And it was just so good. You know, just, you know, she's able to, she's not just narrating. She's not just reading. Like I've seen a lot of narrators do for audiobooks. She's doing full on acting, you know, and it's just so well because, you know, uh, the way she changes the pitches, pitches of her voice and so on, you can really tell who is saying what they're saying, even if there's no, like, you know, continuation of the dialogue and so on. Yeah, when I was asking her what her um, criteria was for picking uh, creepy pastas to narrate, she said she's more drawn towards the one, the ones that have dialogue, because then she gets a chance to to uh, practice her voiceover skills. Right. Because that's right. I think that's her aspirations is to ultimately be a voice actor, and she's already got into a few things. Nice. Uh, in that nice. regard. Well, and you know, I mean. Obviously, what we're talking about now, she's narrating audiobooks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really hope she uh, gets a lot of subs on YouTube, and you know, I can see a lot of good things happening for her. Because, again, she's just, you know, she uh, she's really good. She's really good with that. And I've seen so many narrators because I've been listening for years. I can kind of deduce what's quality and what's not, and she's just really good with that. So yeah. Yeah, her and Derek Weber and Dark Somnium, I think, are some of the best audio quality. Some of the best. Exactly. Uh, delivery. That, right. That I've right. heard. Yeah. The flow is just amazing. You know, they know when to stop, when to slow down, when to speed it up and so on. It's just really good. Well, so how many uh, books do you have on audio? I think it's seven or eight, uh, something like that. I haven't um, published more yet because it's just so expensive to do audiobooks. You know, it takes a lot of time as well. Um, but I do plan to do that because, you know, audiobooks, um, I actually haven't even thought about audiobooks until recently. And then someone told me you can actually earn a lot of good cash from audiobooks. And that's when I just quickly started working on it. But the problem is I prioritize audiobooks that I like, even though they don't sell too well. You know, ah. I probably should have like published, you know, the ones from the Haunted Places series or from the Creature Encounters. And that one, pro that, that would probably bring more money. But I've published... The Grayson Legacy, which is the worst selling book I have just because I like it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just slowly getting there to publishing the rest of them. Well, so out of all those books that you have on audio, how many different narrators have you utilized? Let me see. I had um, there was one who was also a YouTube narrator. He was one. There's Danny. There was a guy I found on ACX. And another one. So that's four. That's four. I usually try to find one that I like and I just stick with them until I stop liking their quality, you know, but as long as I like them, I'm okay with them. I, I'm, I would be okay, for example, with Danny doing all my books, you know, um, unless it's maybe like a first person, you know, uh, styled book and the male character and whatnot. Yeah. But I don't see why that also wouldn't be able to uh, be done by a woman. Um you know, so I wouldn't be, I would be okay with one narrator doing all my books as long as I like the quality. So, yeah. Okay. Well, and you say that, uh, audiobooks sell exponentially well. Depends how you market them. Depends on your genre. Depends, um, on a lot of things, but I'm going to go on a limb and say that audiobooks can actually earn you more money than eBooks if you do it right. You know? Um, for example, for TikTok, I got on TikTok because I heard that so many authors earn a ton of cash, you know, over there because all they do is they post some videos and they earn like 10, 15 K a month. These are like, wow. um, yeah, but this is like mm -hmm. romance and a reverse harem and other kind of mm. stuff, which, you know, it's, it's a broader audience and people are just naturally horny. They're going to buy that stuff, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh. Yeah, for horror, people just um, – I kind of realized that on TikTok when I advertise my eBooks, they sell almost nothing. 
But when I advertise my audiobooks, it just really grows. I can see a huge uptick in the sales for audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Well, you yourself, what do you prefer if uh you know, you're going to read something you like ebook, uh, hard copy or uh, audio. Yeah. I mean, I kind of switch between all of them. I do love the feeling of paperback in my hands. You know, there's just nothing like that. And you can track the progress. You can see how many pages you have left and so on. And then just when you're done, you shelf the book and that's it. Just looks pretty over there. You know, ebook is way more convenient. Most of the stuff I read on ebook format simply because it's just easy to uh, have it there. You have a ton of books on ebook on your ebook reader, and that's it. You just carry it with you. But I also do audiobook listening, you know, almost daily. When I'm working out, when I'm going on, you know, my walk and so on, I do like to listen to it. I do need to be in a specific kind of mood um, so that I can just kind of immerse myself in the audiobook setting. So I kind of switch between all three formats. Yeah. Yeah, I like um, ebooks because you can have them on you at all times. And, you know, if you find yourself with a free moment, you can just whip your phone out and start reading. Yeah. The only problem is, is that I have extreme ADD. So like if I lose (laughs) my place and and I have to scoot, you know, like I kind of zone out if I have to scoot back a few pages, then I feel like I'm kind of lost in the book because I don't have a physical book in front of me and it just weirds (laughs) me out. Yeah. And, and, and audiobook, forget about it. I will zone out immediately. So, <laughs> so I prefer, I prefer hard copy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, but, to each their own. Yeah. But, but audiobook by Danny Dreadful, I think I'll make an exception for. <laughs> All right. I'll send you some codes for it. You can listen to it. Let me know what you think. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, for me, it's this, it's a similar thing. I lose my focus easily when I'm reading something in the ebook format. For audiobook, I don't have that luxury. And I've kind of learned that even if it plays in the background, you know, while I'm doing some chores or whatever, I kind of still focus on it and I don't drift around. For ebook, it's very easy for me. If I have my phone next to me, I'm not going to have any reading done, you know. So I need to lock it. I need to put it away and just, just tunnel vision the ebook reader. Okay. Uh, so with your prolific output, I would assume you're kind of like a stream of consciousness. You just sit down and start belting things out. But I don't know, maybe not. Are you a pantser or do you outline? Here's the thing. Um, Ideas initially come to me, you know, just out of the blue. But again, it's just an idea, like I mentioned before, and I need to work around that. I need to create an outline so that I would be able to uh, have some compelling story. You know, back when I posted No Sleep, it was easy. You have an idea, you know, there's a, I don't know, talking rock on the street or something, and it's easy just to make a story about that. It's a thousand words and so on. But for a book, you know, that's 50, 60, 100K uh, words long, you need to have some stuff happening there, you know? And that's where, you know, you need to build some suspense and so on. So I create an outline. But the problem is a lot of the times, well, most of the times, I don't follow that outline. <laughs> well, it's not so much that I don't follow. You can't color inside the lines, can you? <laughs> yeah, right. And my characters just refuse to follow that outline, you know? And I'm going to find myself in a lot of cases that I'm at this crossroads and I'm thinking, you know what? Maybe this doesn't look so realistic now that I'm here, you know? Why would he do this or say this? It's just really stupid. How about if he did this instead? But then I need to go back and rewrite because it just doesn't make sense. You know, it's conflicting and so on. So I generally, um, I have like a basic outline. It serves there as like a bone structure, but it's not there strictly to follow it. 
because I do know a lot of uh, writers they have very strict outlines, you know, uh, on thesis, like wh- who's going to say what at what time, what's going to be the word count by this time and so on. And they have like a very strict schedule. For me, I could never do it that way because things just change along the way. Things just spontaneously come, you know? Yeah, the person that I've heard interviewed that uh, outlines to high holy hell is Brett Easton Ellis. Oh, yeah? I've heard I've heard him on multiple occasions, like just say, no, there's no way in hell I would ever uh, write by the seat of my pants. And, and you know, it kind of <laughs> makes sense. Have you read his books? No, no. I've, I, I mean, like, I've uh, seen his stuff, but I've never read his books. Yeah, like American Psycho or even if you have you seen the movie American Psycho? Yeah. So you remember how detailed everything is he talks about? He's critiquing music and clothing styles. Everything's like a a commodity to be bought and sold. So I totally get pros like that being heavily outlined. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it kind of helps. You know, I think um, I think that's what makes, for example, characters really good. There is one author that I found recently, Anya Alborn, and her books it's like maybe the story is not going to be something, you know, revolutionary, but the characters are so well written because you can see that she took so much time to outline what they're going to be like. You know, some authors just kind of focus on the storyline. Some focus just on the characters. Many focus on both of those, you know, and you can see that she just did such a good job that this was all planned because this kind of stuff, writing such good characters it doesn't come so spontaneously, you know? So I think planning, there's something to it, but some people just don't function so well like that. For example, I just never was able to write like that. Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned um, if you're doing self-publishing, you need to be learning to do what like a traditional uh, publisher would be doing for you. Does that include right. editing? Like you, do you edit your own work? I do have to do um, at least a couple of rounds of editing and rewriting, but not to uh, eliminate the typos and so on. I'm terrible at that. Um, I do it mostly just to remove any inconsistencies and to add or remove things that make or don't make sense. You know, like either some inner monologue or some dialogues or maybe something that I think would enrich the story or maybe an ending, for example, for my new book. Sinister Melody, I had like four endings until I figure out which one I'm going to stick with. Um, So I do kind of write multiple drafts and then I edit those before I send it to my editor who actually does the actual editing. Okay. Is this like been your editor long term or have you gone through a few with different works? Oh, I have so many nightmare stories <laughs> for, with editors. Yeah. <laughs> you would not believe the nightmare stories I have yeah. with editors. You know, it's like the problem is there are so many sharks out there, so many people claiming that they are editors. Mm-hmm. Where, while in Grifters. reality, <laughs> right? And all yeah. they've done is they've uh, they've been born in the United States or the UK, and they've had an A in English, and that's it. Maybe they finished a course or two, you know, (laughs) so they think that makes them a good editor. And I've had to pay a lot of cash and I had to, I I burned myself so many times with, you know, bad editors until I found some long-term ones that I'm working with. I have a couple of editors that I'm sticking with right now. Uh, One is, she's actually, you know, uh, called Miss Eloquent. That's the way, uh, that's the name of her website. And she is just so good. You know, I can see the line editing. I can see the quality that I'm getting now that it wasn't getting before. 
Because others, you know, what, what I what I was getting before, it was just proofreading, and even that sucked, you know. Yeah. But she is really going into details about changing the structure of the sentence, you know, changing whatever doesn't make sense, you know, just making the aesthetics of the sentences way better, you know. Awesome. So yeah. Well, I really love the uh, premise of "They Came from the Mall," which was centered around automatonophobia, as uh, defined at the beginning of the book, the fear of human-like creatures like mannequins. And uh, mannequins are, in my opinion, de facto creepy. And it's as if in the story, the mall is a locked, insane asylum, and the mannequins <laughs> are the crazy inmates. Exactly. So, so, <laughs> so where did you get the inspiration to turn something as innocuous as a shopping mall into a, an absolute nightmarish hellscape? <laughs> oh, you get this from, you know, just when you're in this business, you get ideas everywhere. I can look at my fan over there and I can just say like, oh, man, this would be make there is an idea there is just waiting to be woken up, you know, a killer fan or something. So for <laughs> anything, from anything benevolent, you can actually make something deadly. But I've actually been urban exploring a couple of places uh, in the past. I've also seen some videos on YouTube because I follow all those urbex people. And there was one which was about an abandoned mall. And the one thing that I always wanted to do was, you know, the mall is not so important. The mannequins are important here. There are just not enough mannequin stories out there you know and they're just so inherently creepy yeah. and i remember i read one book by uh stephen graham jones which was night of the mannequins and you know nothing against that, that guy but the book was horrible i just hated the book <laughs> it was nothing what i expected i was just hoping for some creepy mannequin stuff you know nothing happened you know there was barely any any assemblage of a mannequin over there and then that's kind of like when i figured you know what i'll do it myself I'll write a mannequin book, you know, because I've been looking for them on Amazon. They weren't there. And I just I just feel like it's an untapped source. And I feel like it's so creepy at the same time, you know, just like, you know, deep sea exploration. There are not enough books about that for mannequins. You know, there's just something so creepy about them. We just don't realize what. And I think that's what creeps us out even more that we look at them. We see that something creeps creeps us out about him, but we don't know what, you know, and I wanted to use that. And I've been sitting on that idea for a while. Originally, it was supposed to be like a cave mysteriously filled with mannequins. But then I just kind of figured maybe an abandoned mall would be a better idea. Yeah, the mall seems I mean, I guess I would have to think about the cave for a minute, but the mall it's just weird. You know, you think about a mall, it's just this place where people congregate and, you know, people yeah. buy stuff. I remember, you know, when I was a kid, going to the mall was fun, but then you take all that out and you just leave the building itself and it's been abandoned for a while. And then you put into play the fact that it's been barricaded, closed. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Not to give away too many spoilers, but yeah. No, no, it's all fine. These are all good. Um, but yeah, you're right. Absolutely right about that. You know, it's like the mall is just all so innocent and happy and jovial, you know, during the daytime, kids are screaming and so on. And then you have this skeleton of a building, you know, all abandoned. You know, there are, it's like you see these dilapidated mannequins, you know, just um, flaking dolls and so on. It's just so creepy when you find yourself in a dark room, you know, and, and it's just staring back at you. Yeah. Well, and besides the terror of the mannequins, there was some compelling drama going on with the teenage kids. And it wasn't shallow nonsense. It was drama with consequences. So right. 
how did you interweave the dramatic elements of the relationships between the teenagers with the progressively worsening encounters with the mannequins? Well, here's the thing. Um, one thing I've learned back when I was in the army, um, we were constantly sleepy and hungry and we were just lashing out at each other. And one thing I realized, uh, it was like, for example, when you're going to the lunch line, you know, everybody is just pushing and shoving to get their guns back, you know, the rifles back in their, uh, rack. So you can just go and eat and we're just yelling at each other, biting and so on. And um, one thing I realized is when you take even the most basic things from people, they kind of show you the true, true colors. They show you like what kind of animalistic creatures they can become, you know? So when you just raise the stakes, when you kind of like put them in this situation, when there's panic, when there's danger, you get to see who's going to be selfish, who's going to, you know, just save his own ass, who's going to actually be a, a leader type and just kind of, you know, get others to safety and so on and how this is going to unfold how the the unspoken thoughts that they have between each other are going to be verbalized in that situation. Mm -hmm. Well, your uh, depiction of the relationship between Mike and his stepdad, Larry, is very dark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at, uh, at one point, Mike recalls and applies advice he had gotten from Larry, and uh, that, in combination with the behavioral change that's noticed by his girlfriend, paints a, a very dark picture of the generational curse of abuse. So when you're getting into that dark psychology, does it ever affect you negatively? And uh, if so, how do you deal with that? There are some things that can affect me, but it needs to be something really, really relatable to me. I luckily have never had such a relationship, you know, with my family that I've been abused and so on. So I wasn't affected by it when I was writing. Um, there have been situations where, you know, there I've written from personal experiences and this kind of does stick with you even after you finish writing, but you know, it's nothing major, you know, you do, yes, you get into this world, you know, when you're writing, you're inside a different world, you know, a world you created and it can be, uh, it can be just, you know, fluffy with unicorns and puppies and so on, <laughs> or it can be very dark, you know, with mm -hmm. mannequins and, you know, uh, family abuse and so on. Um, the important thing to keep in mind is, you know, it's, I think that horror authors, none of them are unscathed. I think those who write horror, all of us have this sort of a darkness inside us. And we're just kind of, we're kind of like using writing as a catalyst, you know, to just say something maybe that we don't want to talk about and so on. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not that at all. But my point is, I think everybody, everybody who writes this kind of stuff, um, they are they, they have some darkness inside them. Even Stephen King said that he doesn't remember at all writing his book, Carrie, because he was so hyped up on drugs. Yeah. 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 Not that I have a, so far have a large um, sample of authors to draw from, but most people will say that you get into that dark place. Sometimes you have to step away and recover. Uh, but in the long run, it's very cathartic. Like it's almost a way to purge it. So. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I know that a lot of authors have they have to like either drink or something to make it uh, more bearable. For me, I honestly just can't wait to step into that dark world. You know, I just can't <laughs> wait to get into that, just yeah. away from the mundane and so on. You know, my brother always tells me, "You are in your own world." You know, and it's a dark world, and I love that world. Yeah, I assume you've read uh, the book. I think it's called On Writing that Stephen King wrote. Yeah. on his writing craft. Right. Yeah, I remember him like 
all of the drugs he did, alcohol, I think cocaine and whatnot, he said the thing that he quit that affected his writing most was cigarettes. The cigarettes. nicotine helped him focus. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't remember that bit. Yeah. I didn't think it affects it that way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but um, certain elements of your story remind me of true accounts of clandestine experimental government projects like MKUltra and uh, Project Stargate. Have you done any research into that area and drawn any inspiration for your, for I am, your uh, yeah, stories? Yeah, I'm a big um, fan of conspiracy theories. Nice. <laughs> I'm not put on my tinfoil hat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a conspiracist. I don't believe the earth is flat or anything like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I was very much into CIA projects, you know, like like you mentioned, MK Ultra. You know, in the one they did in Vietnam, the uh, chemical one, I forgot what it's called. Are you talking about the uh, the false flag, the Gulf of Tonkin? Uh, there was something where they just dropped a bunch of chemicals on a you know jungle and just the whole area just died. I can't mm. remember what that one was called. Oh, they, they were using Agent Orange? Was that that's what they were the using? That's the one, Agent Orange. That's yeah, one. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I've been into this kind of stuff a lot. My book, Radio Tower, has drawn direct inspiration from MK Ultra. Um. But as for the book you've read, um, it was more like – here's the thing. Back when I posted my first story uh, on No Sleep – well, actually, it wasn't the first story. But one of the first stories was Tales of a Security Guard, which was – which revolved around, you know, this security guard who works in a company that deals with some paranormal and other kind of unexplained uh, phenomena, you know. This was inspired by the story called uh, – I'm uh, – what was it called? Arrest, search and Rescue Officer – and he was like a guy in the woods who uh, constantly ran into some crazy shit, you know. And um, most of my books that are written nowadays are drawn from the tales of a security guard. And a lot of people have told me that it's very similar to the SCP Foundation. Uh, secure, Contain, Protect, I think it's called. And, you know, I've seen a lot of similarity, but this was unintentional. I didn't mean to, like, either copy the SCP or anything like that. I didn't, I didn't even know who the SCP was. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I mean, this is, like, a, the biggest thing for Creepypasta. They have, like, a, this is, like, a huge company, a very, very secretive, secretive company that deals with these uh, monsters and creatures that, you know, they, they can just be something completely innocuous or they can be something deadly. And they have like certain clearance security teams dealing with them and so on. They need to kind of store them in, you know, huge bunkers and whatnot. So like um, a lot of people have told me that a lot of my stories are similar to the SCP. But like I said, I haven't read that much of SCP and I haven't known about the SCP before uh, I started writing my own stories. So, yeah. Have you read uh, Chaos by Tom O'Neill? No, I have not. Chaos, Charles Manson, and the Secret History of the 60s, I think. Okay. Oh, you got If you like conspiracy, you know, not conspiracy theories like there's lizard people running the world or something like that, <laughs> but like, you know, uh, stuff that's linked to the CIA, uh, that okay. book, it, like the guy that wrote it, he was a journalist and it took him 20 years to write, basically ruined his life. Jeez, because he just it it occupied every spare minute he had, but a uh, <clears throat> great book. Okay, so, I'll take a look. Yeah, who would you say your writing influences are? Initially, it was Stephen King. Um, I grew up with him, reading his books, not with him like in his house. Um, <laughs> I grew up reading his books. As of late, you know, I've had a couple of people who I uh, look up to, with, uh, who are uh, Jeremy Bates, for example, is a really good writer in my opinion. The one I mentioned before, Anya Alborn, she's really good, newly discovered. 
Um, I like her. And there have been some indie, indie authors I've been following. For example, TJ Payne. I think it's indie, actually. I can't tell for sure. TJ Payne, for example, was really good. And all of them are, you know, it's like specifically for indie authors, the reason why I love to read them is because they a lot of them can prove that um, since there's so much stigma around self-publishing, people think like, oh, if you're self-published, your book is going to suck because, you know, nobody wanted to publish your book. So you had to go the self-publishing route. And there are so many self-published authors who kind of like um, prove otherwise, you know, they debunk the, that theory by uh, producing quality books that honestly, to me, look like they might as well have been traditionally published. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, who was uh, who was your favorite character to write? In, the, they in, in the uh, they came from the mall. Yeah. Um, let me think. Andrew, I would say it was Andrew because um, I drew a lot from you myself. Both had, you both had the aspirations for law enforcement, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We both wanted to be a cop. And I kind of like did a little bit of copy pasting of what I would have been like maybe in that situation and so on. Not too much, though, just just some basic outlines and so on. So he was my favorite one to write. And I especially enjoy because I didn't want to make him like back when I still wrote for fun, I would unintentionally make myself like a character in the book. And I would unintentionally make that character like a really good guy. And he always stays alive. And so he's always the hero. I didn't want to make Andrew like that. I wanted to make him just a human being with flaws and so on, normal flaws, you know, relationship flaws and so on. And I think that worked out really well because it kind of showed that, you know, even though he had the, these aspirations, even though he was, you know, so ambitious and so on, um, he still had his own flaws. Yeah. Well, it was a great book. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> you read it. Yeah. Great book. Anybody listening, check that one out. But moving on, as of the 12th of this month, you have Sinister Melody out. Right. That's right. So let's talk about that. Okay. Uh, Sinister Melody. Um, first of all, that was a short story I published long, long, long ago. I have no idea where because I can't find it anywhere. But this was um, <laughs> this was um, something I got from a dream. Sometimes my ideas come in nightmares and dreams, you know. This was a dream where a guy got a music box. And, of course, the music box says, don't play. What does he do? Like every horror movie character, yeah. he ignores it and he plays it, you know. <laughs> what so would be the fun with, in that? If you... <laughs> of course. Yeah, it's like I should have just written one page where he says, okay, cool, not going to play. He stows it back away in the attic. <laughs> That's at the end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, and yeah, after he plays the uh, music, strange stuff starts happening. Now, the short story was way different. In the short story, the guy fell into a sort of a coma after playing the music. And in that coma, he was plagued by these vivid nightmares that seemed to last for years and years and years. And he woke up only to find out it was only like it's been a day, you know. The book is very different, you know, it's nothing like that, you know. Um, so I just, I wrote that completely from scratch. I just used the bass, which is a haunted, you know, music box. I love music boxes. There's just something so creepy about them, you know. Like you also said before, something about hearing them, let's say, in the middle of the night, you know, it's creepier than hearing the tranquil music in the middle of the day, you know. And I just wanted to write something about a music box. It just had to be a book. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. All right. I look forward to that. Um, there's a different one that's coming out that's narrated by Danny Dreadful, right? 
Uh, yeah, the one that's coming out is a very, very old book. That one is The Grace and Legacy. Okay. So I read that your uh, No Sleep series, Tales of a Security Guard, is being made into a video game and a short film. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm not sure if actually anything is going to come out of that. It's been a while since I spoke to the guys who were working on that. There was a group from Germany who contacted me a while ago, and they wanted to make a short movie about uh, Tales of a Security Guard. And they even started working on it. They sent me some footage. Some shots from the scene. It looked oh, really that, good. That was cool as shit. That was really cool. They even had <laughs> yeah. like their own mugs with like the insignia of the company that says your safety is our success. With oh, the, model of the company. God. That's that was, awesome. It was awesome. You know, it was awesome because <laughs> they were just so into it. Um, then COVID struck. So I'm not sure if they're still going to continue working on it. Goddamn COVID. <laughs> I hope they do. I'm going to get in touch with them these days. But I got so many requests, you know, on No Sleep. They were saying, like, hey, can I make an animated movie out of your story? Can I make a video game? Can I make this and that? I always just say yes, and I assume they're not going to do it because most of them just give up on the idea. It's just way too much work, you know. But then these guys, they stuck to their guns. They started working on it. Again, what's going to come of it? I have no idea. As for the video game, this was um, this was a very young uh, person, um, some teenager. Seven, I think she was 17 or something. She was working on a video game of Tales of a Security Guard. Again, she kind of went um, radio silent a while ago, but she did show me some gameplay and how it looked. It it was pretty genius, I gotta say. The way she made it, you know, it was very very loyal to the stories. The office setting, how it looked, was just amazing. You know, when when you see that kind of stuff, it's just wow. You know, when you when you write something, you can imagine yourself there, but you can kind of you're left to your imagination. You can imagine how you want it to be. But when you listen to audiobooks, it's on a somewhat higher level. And when you actually see it with your own eyes, it's a completely different thing, you know, and you're seeing like and you're like, wow, I wrote this stuff, you know. So that was cool. She kind of went, um, she guided me through the whole thing, um, you know, running through the office building. She was telling me, oh, this is where this thing is going to spawn. This is where this guy is going to attack. This is where you need to do this rule. And it was really cool. But again, you know, she uh, just stopped mid-development because I think she had a lot of, uh, you know, uh, tests and whatnot to uh, complete. Yeah. Well, speaking of seeing your work elevated in different media other than in the written form, have you ever dabbled in screenplay writing? I have thought about it. I honestly would like to pitch some of my books to Netflix or, you know, someone like that. But it's honestly, it takes a lot of time and dedication. I would need to have my own agent again. Nothing can be done without agents, I think. <laughs> and I'm going to need to... Um, you know, it's going to be something that I'm going to have to do, like, after I've written a um, an amount of books that I'm going to be happy with, then I'm going to actually sit down and consider what I need to do to pitch my ideas to, you know, to just get them adapted into screenplay. I obviously wouldn't be able to afford it, nor would I be yeah. able to, nor would I be able to uh, actually, you know, be the director uh, for that kind of stuff. It would suck. Um, so that I would, would be cool, to... though, a pure auteur, uh, <laughs> written, directed, and scored by Boris. Scored, and even uh, starred, <laughs> oh, starring yeah, yeah, Boris. Be... I gotta be in the yeah. movie as well, and uh, I'm gonna play all the characters. At least make a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is something I always wanted. Back when I was younger, I used to um, act in the theater a little bit, 
and I always wanted to make like a like a small cameo or just to be a villain in a in a movie. <laughs> so coming back to the main thing we talked about, so maybe one day I'm gonna pitch it to Netflix, but right now it's not a priority because it's just it's just gonna take way too much time and dedication mm. for me. So that's something you can do. You don't necessarily have to write a screenplay. You can just pitch your book in its book form to be adapted. As far as I know, yeah, you give him the book and all they do is, I mean, maybe you need to have like a demo or something. I'm not honestly sure, but you need to have something that's going to grab their attention. And once you do that, they're going to do the rest. You know, they do, they have that creative freedom to do whatever they want with that. Um, Adam Neville, for example, the uh, author of uh, No One Gets Out Alive. Uh, this was a book, and only recently has it been uh, made into a movie by Netflix. And it's a pretty good movie, but very different from the book. Very short, and the ending is completely different than you know what the uh, book was like. So I think they have the creative freedom from, uh, for that. I'm not sure how much the author has a say in the whole thing. Well, uh, what uh, subgenre of horror movie do you gravitate toward? It really depends on my mood. Okay. <laughs> it's like <laughs> for a while, I'm going to just watch a lot of paranormal stuff. I'm just going to watch it until I get sick of it. And then I'm going to move on to something else, like maybe some slashers, you know. Then from the slashers, I'm going to go to some thrillers or some slow burn suspense buildup, you know, and so on. Or maybe something unconventional. I do like some. I do like horror movies and horror books that are like you don't know what the hell is going on and you don't know what the hell it's going to be about, you know. Like, for example, uh, what's it called? Uh, Midsommar. When no. I watched that one. Yeah. That was such a good movie. You uh -huh. know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um... The one that producer or director did uh, before that, uh, Hereditary. Hereditary was Holy one of the best shit, ones. Man. <laughs> My was God. So good. That movie was the part where the outside motion or heat sensing light came on, was going on and off while he was lying in bed. And you're just sitting there like, why the fuck am I just staring at this kid? And then you look up and you see his mom in the ceiling up in that the corner. The fucking ceiling, oh, yeah. Oh, that scared the living shit out of me. Oh, yeah. And for me, it was like, I watched and I was like, I don't get a thing. And then I watched, some, somebody told me like, rewind a little bit and focus on this particular corner. And I did and it was like, holy fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs> she was there all along and it was just so it's like when i started watching hereditary i thought it was going to be just another you know just typical paranormal bullshit movie you know uh haunted house people escape or everybody dies and that's it you know but this was just on a whole new level it was just so different it was so fresh and i don't get spooked easily but this one really spooked the hell out of me yeah great movie yeah well so uh Tell me about your time. Uh, I'm not sure what period of your life it was, but working as a fitness coach or a fitness coach or like a personal trainer. Yeah, you know, like? personal yeah. trainer. I uh, graduated from uh, fitness. Uh, well, I guess you can call it a fitness vocational school over here. And right away, I started working as a fitness coach. This was like back then I had three jobs. So fitness coach was just one of them. I... Uh, I was into bodybuilding a lot back then, you know, I really knew a lot about fitness and I just really enjoyed the whole thing with the gym and all that. After a while, you know, I started teaching online. It was not only more, more profitable, but just way more convenient. I didn't need to deal 
with like clients who complain about not losing weight after eating a whole jar of Nutella for dinner and so on. <laughs> and um, what happened was, you know, it was just way more convenient for me to work as an online teacher. And in the end, you know, I couldn't, I, well, nowadays I wouldn't be able to work as a fitness coach anyway, because what happened was I had a serious back injury from my bodybuilding days. And, you know, so I spent a long time for rehab and so on. So now I'm squatting just kind of, or deadlifting. Both. Ah, okay. <laughs> it was both, but mostly squat. That's at least what the uh, chiropractor said that it was mostly from squat that I just messed up, you know, just blew out all my discs. And um, so I needed years and years of rehab. I still have trouble with that. And on the other hand, it was actually a good thing that happened to me because that was what prompted me to think, what am I going to do with my life? You know, because back then, you know, it's like I identified with being a bodybuilder. And when that was stripped away from me, this was the most defeating thing for me. You know, I felt the most defeated that I have in my entire life. And so I thought about, I got to find something else. You know, I can't just, you know, wallow in self-pity. I need to find something I'm going to do. And I spent a very long time thinking about what I'd like to do until I reached the conclusion that writing is something that, you know, just really uh, makes me feel good about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I kind of had the same thing. I wouldn't say that I was a bodybuilder, but there was a time where I had myself chiseled to the Greek god status, but uh, <laughs> my left shoulder is just, I'm, I'm going to probably end up needing a replacement by the time I hit retirement age and my knee on the right. And um, uh, I still go to the right. gym. I'm still pretty strong, still have good endurance, but my diet is dog shit <laughs> <laughs> same here yeah. i think we just grew tired probably of yeah. years and years yeah well, i mean i know what it was like i know what it, was, it was like i had all these photo shoots and it was just so unhealthy because i was like doing the uh stuff where you just basically throw out the water from your body so you can mm -hmm. look better for the you know photos. dehydrating yeah. dehydrating and you know it's like i fainted the day before the photo shoot and i still kept going the cramps just wouldn't let up you know it's just so unhealthy i used to be such an advocate for bodybuilding and i was like bodybuilders tend to be kind of arrogant and you know narcissistic i was very much like that i was like looking down well, you got anybody. a lot of steroids in you making you that way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's like when that happens it's like you're looking down on anybody else uh, and um i didn't like this approach i didn't like you know to be like this and i was like initially when i started working out it was because i wanted to be a cop and somewhere along the way i just you know um got sidelined and just went to uh, bodybuilding and just looking good was the most important thing to me. And that is just total bullshit. You know, yeah. it's so unhealthy. It's like a cult and uh, just something that it's like, it take, it's taken me years to figure out how bad it is for the body to constantly go on those rigid diets. And then you eat whatever you want, which is all so bad and just kind of back and forth like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of people, when they see bodybuilders like at the Arnold Classic getting up there and they're just jacked to the gills, they don't realize right then those guys are weak as kittens. Exactly. They haven't exactly. been, they've been cutting weight, eating these insanely low caloric deficit diets. They've uh, been taking diuretics to dehydrate themselves. You know, right before they go on, they, they exactly. eat a few 
few spoonfuls of peanut butter to get their veins to stand up yeah. and do some curls. But other than that, when they get out there, they're like, oh, God, I don't want to pass out in front of all these exactly. people. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's just such a wrong depiction, you know, because it's just it's swerving away from what fitness should be. This is why I have such a problem with that. And a bigger problem why I have such such an issue with that is because I used to work with so many bodybuilding coaches. And this was my mistake for choosing bodybuilding coaches because no matter how many times I told him, look, the main thing I want to do is rehab my back. That's all. Maybe lose a few pounds, but I want to rehab my back and that's it. All they focused on was mind-muscle connection, hitting the right muscles. You have to do curls and whatnot. Otherwise, your quads are not going to look good. And that was all they cared about. No functionality whatsoever. Yeah, the golden <laughs> fire ratio. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your time serving in the Army? Right. So back when I served, it was mandatory. We had like six months of mandatory service in the country. But... When I was 20, I volunteered because uh, what, what the process over here is you need to serve and then you can apply to become a soldier. Since I couldn't be a cop, I figured I might as well become a soldier. You know, that's still something closely related to what I want to do. You know, six months in the army was enough to convince me otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it was nothing like what I expected it would be like. You know, I guess I just had these... Um, idealistic views because of all the movies and whatnot I've seen. And I was like, Oh cool. I'm going to do all this training and going to carry this heavy equipment and crawl under, you know, wired fences. The most thing what I did was brooming and, you know, just shoveling stuff and, you know, raking the leaves. That's what mostly I did over there. <laughs> so that was six months. I was a cook in the army. Okay. I had to have uh, three months of infantry training. And then I was sent for three more months to work in the kitchen. And it was hell. It was hell because you wake wake up at 5 a.m., sometimes earlier, depending if you need to wake up to make breakfast for, you know, the entire uh, platoon. And then you work until 10 p.m. Because, you know, even when everybody's done eating, there are a bunch of dishes you need to wash. So you need to stay there. <laughs> you need to continue you know, waiting until everybody is done. And sure, I had soldiers, you know, under my command. Like in the last three months, there were uh, a group of soldiers who were under my command. And they were essentially doing, you know, everything for me. But whenever they screwed something up, it was I was on you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know how that goes. Hmm. Yeah. So... Anyway, after uh, finishing uh, serving the army, I was still kind of like thinking maybe I want to be a soldier. Maybe. But the pay over here is terrible for soldiers. And there is no base, like, for example, close in my town. There is one in a nearby small town. And I would need to, like, you know, commute there every day. And it would just be so expensive. And they only cover to a certain amount. And then later I realized, you know what? I don't really like higher-ups yelling at me all day mm. long for nonsense you know mm. i don't want to get paid for yelling you know? yeah, so, yeah so much so much like just surface level empty dick swinging like you're just <laughs> exactly. yelling because you want to yell this is not helping matters you know <laughs> right and they're so like using the guys like oh this is for disciplinary measures no these are just dicks you know and um again it's like i had very different views it's very different i assume you know in other countries you know, where people take it way more seriously, where the budget for the army is way bigger. Over here, I think I've had maybe three times that we went to the shooting range. There's no way I'm, I'm going to know how to use a gun now, you know, <laughs> after three <laughs> times of handling it. So, yeah. Uh, 
Well, I read that uh, uh, one of your favorite pastimes is going to escape rooms. Are you still doing that? Been a while since I've uh, gone to one, but I do try to get to one as uh, often as I can whenever I get go to a new town or country or whatever. I always go with my fiance. This actually started uh, when, uh, for my birthday years ago, I think in 2018 or something, she uh, took me to uh, this one place, quote unquote, and I didn't know what the place was. All I knew was when we got there, they gave us uh, orange, uh, you know, uh, overalls, and they put cuffs on us, and they threw us in the cell. <laughs> <laughs> then they told us, you have an hour to get out. Now, it was just you and your fiance, or were you with other people? Yeah, just me and my fiance. Oh, uh, we see, just... that's couples therapy right there. <laughs> right. It can either be therapy, or it's going to disrupt your marriage and cause a lot of trouble. <laughs> but um, yeah, we work really good as a team like that. You know, um, we have a similar mindset, you know, it's like we kind of like compensate with each other, you know, something that I'm lacking, she feels for it and vice versa. And it works out really well. You know, we communicate really well in the escape rooms. It's a really good thing for couples to do. You know, this is why I guess a lot of people do it for uh, team building and so on as well. Right. Yeah. I think my fiance's mentioned it before. And I've kind of like, like, no, I don't want to do that because I assumed it had to be done with other people. Like, I think I could do it me and her, but I don't play well with others. So. I'm like that, too. Yeah. <laughs> imagine if I was other people, I, I would either completely <laughs> withdraw and say, you guys just fucking do it. Or, or I would try to I would try to control everybody or something. Exactly. Or just so. hit that panic button so they can let you out because yeah. too much socializing. Yeah. Um. yeah. <laughs> like, you guys are exhausting me. Fuck off. <laughs> the thing is. I've gone to escape rooms with, you know, other people. Whenever there's more than three people, it's just too crammed. You know, everybody's yelling. Everybody's doing their own thing. Nobody gets turned for, you know, the puzzle because sometimes it's just so small, not very spacious. You know, and there's one person in front of the puzzle doesn't want to let go of the, you know, device or the key or whatever. And others that need to wait. And, you know, you're just kind of standing there. I want to say with, you know, your dick in your hands and just not doing anything <laughs> while you're waiting, you know, for somebody to find something there useful so um doing it like as a couple i think that's um that's a that's a good idea you can do it you know some escape rooms are made to be done um with multiple people i guess but i think the only rule is you can't go alone you know exactly for those scenarios like for example i've had a a saw themed escape room this was where you know uh, one person gets cuffed to the wall and then the other person needs to get him off the wall and so on, you know. So there are these escape rooms where you need a partner to do it. So definitely try it with your fiance. I'm going to guarantee you're going to have a good time. Awesome. Well, it's uh, it's been great talking with you. And as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug? Social media, upcoming projects? Plug? Yeah, my laptop. It's almost out of battery. No shit. Um <laughs> Um, we may be nothing. saying goodbye right now. <laughs> <laughs> nothing much, you know. Um, I guess uh, people don't really follow me too much on Facebook or TikTok and so on. You know, if anybody wants to check me out, Amazon is the best place to do so. So, okay. yeah. All right. When are you and your fiance getting married? Well, we were, uh, this is a, yeah, long story. We were supposed to get married like long ago. Then again, COVID. Oh, yeah. There's such yeah. a backlog now, too. <laughs> uh. And later, we just kind of put it on the back burner. We're just kind of not talking about it for a while. I was like, you know what? I'm too lazy to deal with this stuff. Can you just, you know, organize the wedding? And for a while, she was excited. She was like, okay, cool. And 
after a while, I just came back to her and asked her, so about the wedding, are we uh, going to get married? <laughs> or, uh... And she's like, ah, you know what? I'm too lazy to do it now, too. So let's wait until, you know, sometime in the future. So we don't really have a clear date. We don't have a clear date about when we're going to get married. All right. Yeah. Well, what about uh, you and your fiance? Oh, uh, let's see. November 12th of next year. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. congrats. Thank you. And congrats to the future when uh, when you guys tie the knot. And Thank uh, you. So, well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for enduring the interrogation. And I look <laughs> forward to uh, reading more of your prose. And uh, even though I don't particularly care for audiobooks, I'm definitely going to listen to the one narrated by Danny Dreadful. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that you read my book and for inviting me here. Thanks again for all of that. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and follow the show on Instagram and YouTube. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.